Mia Schachter is a consent wizard. They are an educator, a podcaster, and an intimacy coordinator for TV and film, in addition to being an artist in their own right. This conversation is one of the most subtly life-altering talks that I've had the privilege to be a part of, and Mia's ideas surrounding embodied consent, the notion of containers creating safe spaces to play, and a learned consent fluency becoming a part of how we move through the world is so beautiful and powerful that it's actively giving me a spiritual awakening as I try to better listen to my body and my intuition and to support others in doing so. Please check out Mia's work at consentwizardry.com or on Instagram at consent.wizardry and listen to their great podcast, Share the Load. Welcome Mia Schachter to Sober Sex. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got it, spiritual growth, sober sex, all of this and more. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been like binge listening to share the load. And it's, it's great. It's such, I don't know. It's like such a powerful lens uh, to kind of consider the world. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, so thank you. It's awesome. Awesome work. (laughs) Um, So before we, we kind of get into it, or I guess we we are getting into it. Hi. Hi. (laughs) How are you? Um, I'm okay. I, I woke up. It's, I'm having a strange day, um, but working through it and happy to be here. I think sometimes um, I can stay stuck in a feeling or a group of feelings if I don't have anything to do. So I was looking forward to this kind of like getting me out of my weird mood. Awesome. No pressure. On you. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I've also been having like a weird day, but I think like did all the, the things that supposedly help the weirdness. So like Good. did the <laughs> therapy and a meeting, and now we're here. So it's it's moving. I hope Good. like we can we can transcend together. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, and where are you? Um, I am in Los Angeles or um, Tovangar, um, in an area called Glendale. Love Glendale. Big fan of the Equestrian Center. <laughs> um, but it's it's super, super rainy where you are just to, so if, if people are like, love ASMR, uh, uh-huh. water sounds, here we are. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it, it has lightened up a little bit, but there's like an area, there's stairs that go over my unit and it, the rain seems to pool up there and then like just pound down right in front of the door so that's what I was afraid you'd be hearing well it's not, there's no interruption as of yet and that sounds very exciting <laughs> yeah it's very dramatic <laughs> um, just waterfalls in the home mm-hmm. um, and what are your pronouns I use they them pronouns and what and, and this is kind of like because I'll talk about we a lot because there used to be two other hosts. Now it's just me. <laughs> so the royal we decided that um, 
like pronoun question was maybe like performative and we wanted to actually have, have some curiosity about people's experience with gender. So I wonder mm. what is your experience of gender today? Today, um, I'm feeling a little bit like separated from my gender today. Um, I don't know if that's what people ever use the term a gender for. Mm -hmm. It's always been a term that I've been like, Oh, I wonder what that's like. Um, and normally I feel a bit more like gender fluid or playful around gender or even more like mask leaning. But I think it's something about this strange mood I woke up in where I'm like, I don't know what gender feels like. Yeah, I, I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's interesting, like you so kindly pointed us towards uh, Risden, mm -hmm. um, who is a wonderful guest who we talked to a couple weeks ago, and they were like, it's camp. <laughs> and, yes. and that was, has been such like a helpful touch point. Um, I, I use she, her, but it's like having these conversations has been super helpful for just kind of being like, oh, maybe it's like not so serious. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, Risden, I really love her approach to gender. She kind of, I think she's like, she's like gender Barbie. And I mean, I, I really appreciate that. And I like, yeah, I think the word camp makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm excited to listen to the episode that she did. Me too, actually. I haven't edited it yet, so I'm excited to like give it some space and then like go back in and have like be freshly enlightened. Um, so we're going to jump, like typically we kind of do some more icebreaker shit, but I think that um, we're going to jump into the straight end and go kind of into the anchor questions because I think okay. it's going to like inform the rest of the discussion in a, in a, in a fun way. Um, so what were the first messages you remember receiving around sex or sexuality? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I think a lot of it was coming from romantic comedies and TV. Um, uh, I, I remember like watching the OC in high school. Um, and I rewatched it a couple years ago, kind of as like research into my own psyche. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't recommend it for anybody. <laughs> it <doesn't hold> up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's not something that I would suggest, but I, I enjoyed it. I think there was a way that it was kind of, um, cathartic and a little bit, um, I don't know, like it helped me piece together certain things, um, and excavate my own thinking in a way, but I was really struck by this feeling of like, even when these moments of like gender consent, sex relationships, came up on the show that felt so archaic, um, you know, these lessons about like how to be and how to act and how these things are supposed to look. Um, I had this really strong feeling of like, this is not the first place that I learned it though. Like this mm. was just sort of like a reinforcing place. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly where they came from. I'm offering a class um, in February on the romantic comedy where we're going to watch for rom-coms from my childhood, um, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, and then kind of like also learn consent concepts and then kind of like go through, you know, how this messaging has affected us and like where it shows up. Um, you know, that's all like, I'm an intimacy coordinator. So a lot of the stuff that I'm thinking about in terms of these things like relates to, 
media and especially television and film. Um, I do have one very strong memory. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't think my dad listens to these things and like, we have a great relationship, so I'm not like faulting him here, but it's just, you know, it's interesting how these sort of unconscious things like show up. Um, like, I don't think that he was thinking very much about it, but I remember watching, um, an episode of sex in the city, uh, in the kitchen, I think as, as my mom and I were preparing dinner or something like that. And, um, there's an episode where Carrie is, uh, I mean, it's, it's so reductive and it's like funny to even think about it. In this <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> about what you're going to say. It's like, <laughs> what episode was it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so the plot, like as it's described is that she's trying, she's writing a column on like having sex, like a man, mm-hmm. which in that episode <laughs> is defined as like, she gets to come and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so they hook up. It's like a guy that I guess she used to hook up with and they ha- have never been, you know, doing much more than that. And, um, they, they go to his place and he goes down on her. She comes and then she gets up and leaves. And, uh, I remember just in passing my dad, like walking through the kitchen and he goes, he just like, you know, grunts or gasps in like exasperation, like how ridiculous, how dare she, how dare she, she? that's so horrible. Um, and you know, that, that was enough to like plant the lesson, um, I mean, especially because, like, literally everywhere else in the culture is reinforced. Yeah, Especially at that time. Totally. And that was also, like, a thing that ended up happening to me later in life. Not that exact situation, but but a situation in which, um, I mean, I was not coming. But there was someone in my life that I was in a relationship with. And he was, like, indignant that he didn't get to finish And he, um, and it was because I was like in pain, like I was experiencing pain during sex and he multiple times got like absolutely livid with me because he didn't get to come. And, um, you know, I can now kind of trace that back to like, wow, okay. I I pretty clearly learned that lesson that like, that was my responsibility and it was not okay to leave at least a cis man in that situation. No, totally. I mean, my, I remember my therapist, and who's a, a cis man, informed me that blue balls is essentially a myth. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, it's something that just drives me nuts when I hear about it because I'm like, do you have any idea like how damaging and hurtful this is to other people? It's just wild, especially because I think that like I didn't even think to question it, and, to, and I, I I think I I felt like terrible guilt for like leaving men hanging or something, right. and then. He was like, you know, that's like kind of bullshit. And I was like, yeah, it's what? Not real. I mean, you know, and there, I, I can relate to like a certain amount of discomfort of like a buildup and like no really. And obviously I have different anatomy, but like, yeah, I've heard over and over and over that it's like basically not real. And so now just anytime I hear it, I'm like, oh my God, please keep that out of my ears. <laughs> it's like stop with your nonsense and again like I, I think compassion for like people's different experiences sure but like yo I mean I think so much of I don't know you probably <laughs> this is like preaching to the choir but I think so much of like uh, the femme identity is like 
composed of like enduring pain or enduring discomfort for the sake of like the patriarchy essentially. Oh (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly taught me to like not to speak up when I was uncomfortable or in pain during sex, you know, like that was, that was pretty awful. Yeah, seriously. And also to not like question that, like to not, to have that not be a thought. Like I think part of the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is because for a long time, and I don't think my experience is, um, is unique that much, but like surrounding kind of stories of assault or like kind of this, the, the me too of especially the, the music industry that we'll talk about a little bit later, but this idea that like, Oh, that must be so terrible because I never, I was so deeply out of touch with my own notion of consent that I didn't uh, relate to, to the idea because I didn't know saying no was an option. Yeah. Oh yeah. <sighs> so um to kind of pivot from there, like how did that unfold? Like kind of through film and television, like how did you kind of arrive at where you, I mean, it might be a long story, it's a long form podcast, but how did you <laughs> arrive uh, into kind of this era of, of your being in terms of like, I don't know, you're, you're not only being a consent wizard, but, <laughs> but yeah, like get, kind of finding this line of work, being intimacy coordinator, like choosing they, then the pronouns or like, mm-hmm. how did that happen? Well, they are certainly all like interweaving, but um, also somewhat distinct. I think, um, you know, I can tell you how I got into intimacy coordination. Maybe that's a good way in. Um, In my 20s, I was living in New York and uh, trying to work in theater. I was um, taking uh, like theater acting classes and eventually wanted to write and direct theater. So that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, but I was always also very much interested, uh, sort of extracurricularly in sex education and, you know, that encompassed like relationships, um, sex, sexuality, gender. Um, I ended up declaring philosophy as my major, uh, and my intro into philosophy was a philosophy and feminism class at the time. I would imagine it's now called gender studies, Um, and that, you know, we read like gender trouble by, um, by Judith Butler, um, and, and, uh, you know, a lot of Foucault and like all these people who were really talking about the history of like how even gender came to be and like what the function of it was. And I was also, um, volunteering at the Blue Stockings bookstore on the Lower East Side. So I was, you know, entrenched in this kind of conversation all the time. And I was meeting a lot of trans and gender nonconforming people. Wait, can um, I, do you mind if I ask where you went to school? I, I graduated from Columbia. I started at Sarah Lawrence and left for a year and took a couple of classes at UT Austin and Parsons and then ended up at Columbia. Nice. I'm a new school dropout. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, girl learns dropout. Hey. Yeah. Worked out. Um, <laughs> now we have podcasts. <laughs> right. Now we, now we do this, whatever this is. Um, so I uh, was, yeah, I was like really kind of excavating all this stuff through a very like theoretical lens and then started, you know, applying it to myself and thinking like, wow, I don't, you know, what does this actually mean? for me and in my body and in my experience. Um, and I started listening to Dan Savage. I started listening to Tristan Terramino. Um, 
And, you know, it really was like expanding my awareness very rapidly. So I thought for a while, if I don't make it as a playwright, I'll be a sex educator. <laughs> as though that's like an easier <laughs> path or something. Um, <laughs> but then I, uh, I had a series of really bad experiences in theater. I, one, I would say like fell under the Me Too umbrella with a playwright who's like famously creepy. Um, and then another was just kind of a playwright who was like kind of an egomaniac. Um, and she like, you know, sort of screamed at me via email, you know, like that kind of thing. And, um, it was a very cultish theater company that she was running and I was volunteering and it just got, it got really awful and like rather exploitative. And, um, and then I went to, a, like a party of theater people. And one of the playwrights uh, who ran a theater company, whose career I really admired, um, like she was there and she was getting interviewed and she, she started talking about how she lived with three other people in a Bushwick apartment and none of them could afford cheese. And this was like a, a you know, a woman in her forties. And I was like in my late twenties at the time. And that was kind of it for me. Like I went downstairs, this was like my upstairs neighbors were throwing this party and I went back into my apartment and I just like sobbed through the night. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. Yeah. I don't think that like if the career that I'm aspiring to is going to mean that I can't afford cheese. With my four <laughs> like, roommates. <laughs> with, yeah. Like I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I segued to, I had been doing ceramics as a hobby and I started um, to really like lean into that and, and try to do that and like fine art and performance art. Um, I was making sex toys and, and things like that. And, um, and started doing performance that was feeling really cool about like the body and trauma and sex and gender. And, um, I guess in that I started to see that like, no matter what medium I was using, it was like the same sort of themes. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, um, this is kind of getting long-winded, but no I, I ended up, like, <laughs> go off. Okay. okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, so then I, I did a couple years of this ceramics business. Um, it was called paperclip pottery. And I, um, you know, in a, in a business like that, you are very much counting on success during the Christmas season. And if you don't have it, you're kind of fucked for the mm -hmm. new year because people don't spend money for like the first four months of the year, basically. Um, and that didn't feel good to me. And it's also very isolating. Like I was alone in a studio all day. Um, to produce a lot. Producing a lot, making the same thing a million times. Like it was just, it was not working for me. Um, and, and people really don't value handcrafted items that have a function the way that they value art. So, you know, wholesale, I'm selling a mug for like $17 so that they can sell it for $40. Mm -hmm. Um, when like, I think mugs, handmade mugs should be like a hundred dollars, you know, like, because they take so much work. Um, but anyway, I got really burnt out on that. I found it very lonely and I, uh, decided to move home to Los Angeles, which is where I grew up. And I thought I'm going to try to write for TV and I'm going to like really make like a hard effort to do that. Is that because you felt like a, you had the training and B like you were a good writer and C that it's not the theater. It wasn't kind of like, 
there's money in TV that is just like (laughs) non-existent in theater. Um, And there's also a team, like being a writer in TV, you're like part of a room, you know? Um, So that was very exciting to me. My dad's a talent manager. So it seemed like it was something that I, you know, also had like a good shot at getting my foot in the door. Um, So then a friend of mine asked if I wanted to write a romantic comedy with her about someone whose job was to choreograph sex scenes. And I was like, I don't know if that's a, is that a real job? Like, yes, I would like to write this movie. What kind of research do we have to do? Does this actually exist? And this was, this was like mid early 2018. So shortly after this, all these articles started coming out about this new job in Hollywood called an intimacy coordinator. We then realized like, we have to do a bunch of research on this. We have to try to find one. We have to talk to them and we have to, um, you know, revamp this screenplay. Then I got a job as a casting assistant on a show called The Affair. They hired an intimacy coordinator and I asked if I could interview her for my movie. And she said, yes. So I ended up interviewing her with my friend. My friend took off and I stayed behind and I asked, like, would you train me? This sounds like the perfect kind of like meshing of everything that I do and that I'm interested in. And she said, yeah. Um, At the time, she was the only one doing it. And she couldn't refer anybody when she wasn't available. And she was yeah. working on Euphoria and The Affair. You know, like she was completely it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, so she trained me. And then very quickly, you know, I think, well, a couple things came up. One was that very quickly it was very clear to me that this was like a, a going to become a, a – of gate kept field dominated by cis white women. Um, that was like obvious from walking into the room for training day one. Um, and I made consistent efforts to like try to get a unit on like cultural bias and race and things like that. And I was shut down. Um, you know, and then the more, the bigger that this field got, the clearer that it became that it really, that was like a huge, huge problem Um, and throughout, so throughout this training, like the thing that really struck me the most and began to change my life most rapidly was learning about consent. I went to a dungeon. I did like a, you know, their kind of orientation. I went to the cuddle sanctuary that Jean Franzblau founded in LA and did a cuddle social there that was really impactful. Um, like, can you slow down? Because I like I know about dungeons, but I'm very curious about a cuddle oh, sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, it's a platonic cuddle space where they have cuddle socials and they teach you about consent. Um, <clears throat> and then you can cuddle. That sounds um, amazing. It's pretty incredible. I would highly, highly recommend it. And Jean Franzwa is also a an intimacy coordinator as well. Um, so at the same time that this was all happening. <clears throat> and I mentioned that this is like where recovery really shows up for me mm-hmm. is that I, all my life I've dealt with like really extreme gut and autoimmune related health issues and been unable to find a diagnosis to get support. You know, I've been misdiagnosed all my life with anorexia, um, and various other things and told to just like put butter on everything or like eat you know, eat more (laughs) like that's the, as though that's the problem. So 
in 2019 when I was training to be an intimacy coordinator at the same time, I mean like weeks apart, um, I got, I finally got my diagnoses and it turned out I had five different things. I had a gene mutation. I had, um, a really horrible case of small intestine bacterial overgrowth, candida and two parasites. Mm. And, um, so I started like treatment for that. That was very intense. Um, that went on for like eight or nine months, uh, as I was training to be an intimacy coordinator. So as I'm like learning about trauma and the body and, you know, reading the body keeps the score and learning about like all the ways that I've violated my own consent and not listened to my body's messages and information. Um, you know, I'm beginning this like phase of healing and like moving into a new, uh, period in my life. Uh, okay. So before I go there, you asked about the pronouns. I think what happened for me was like, I was, you know, doing all this, like learning very rapidly about this stuff as it related to intimacy coordination, but I had always had, uh, like, you know, what I can look back on as like a gender fluid or non-binary sense of myself. I just didn't really have the language. Um, and so I was using she and they pronouns for a while, I think right around when I started training for intimacy coordination, that was like feeling right to me. Um, and you know, I've had experiences throughout my life of like reading Eileen Miles books and thinking like, wow, this person talks about their gender, like in the closest way that I've ever felt my experience like spoken to. Um, you know, various experiences like that. I remember in high school, like saying that I was, I thought I was a gay boy, but like not fully understanding what that meant. Um, and then, you know, I had friends who were using they, them pronouns for me because I was using both. And eventually there really was this like shocking shift where, people would use she, her for me. And it would take me a minute. I'd be like, who are you talking about? Like, I thought we were just like talking around. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. Like, are you talking about the other person on this zoom, you know, or like who, and then being like, Oh my God, they're talking about me. And I sat with that for a couple weeks. And then eventually I was like, yeah, I think, I think that's it. I think those are the pronouns now. And it's interesting. And, you know, I think this like relates in part to the question a lot of people in my life have like identified that as like my coming out moment. Mm. And it has been very like unaffirming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's any different from saying that I use she and they now, you know, and like my pronouns could change again whenever. Like I don't see that as a moment of coming out. Well, and it sounds it like almost passive. Yeah. Which is like really gentle and kind of nice. Like not like, I have to let all of you know, <laughs> but like, right. this is, this is who I am. Right. Yeah. It was just like, please use these words for me now. Like that's kind of it. But like, I've always been very open about my experience of gender and how I feel about it. And like, as new language has come, I've used new language. So this idea that like, that was this moment of coming out has been a little bit disorienting to me and also made me feel like, what about this conversation we had? And what about this conversation that we had, you know, where I'm like, where were you in that? Like, I thought yeah. you were there. So then why are these pronouns now like the moment that this is 
new information to you. Like it, it's just the pronouns changing in that moment. So yeah, it's funny because you almost talk about it like these are words I need you to use, so I know you're talking about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like not even like it's yeah, it's not. It, I don't know. It feels not really even outward facing. It's just like so I can self-identify in this conversation. So I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> That's radical because it sounds much more like, I don't know, yeah, gentle than a lot of things we hear. And I think of especially around kind of like non-binary transgender politics, like everybody can get like so kind of like, I don't know, like there's so much, especially in the U.S. right now. I mean, also in France, because literally every word is gendered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this idea of like a, you know, a kerfuffle of like ruffled feathers and you're just like, no, I just need like you to know who you're talking about <laughs> in yeah. the situation. They. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw a really great meme of like a girl taking an exam and she's crying and she's like, um, I mean, I'm assuming she's a girl in a meme. It's like meant to look like a (laughs) girl. (laughs) Um, and it's like, she's, she's sobbing, taking this test and she's like me during my French exam, trying to figure out what gender the washing machine is. <laughs> I think I may have seen that. And it's very much like the story of my life. It's just like, yeah. I'm just like, is it punk? Cause I misgender literally every object in the room at all times. <laughs> Oops. I mean, maybe we should just be like interchangeably. I don't know. I don't have a solution to that. That's I mean, this water bottle identifies as either them. <laughs> of which yeah. there is no word for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so wait, I, I, I interrupted you. Um, uh, Well, I talked a lot, so guide me. Okay, cool. So then it sounds like I'm I'm interested in the kind of ascension into Mm -hmm. consent wizardry. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right, how did we get there? How did we get there? But also I think um, in in kind of exploring some of your work and listening to the podcast and like also kind of reflecting on my own experience, it sounds like it's not like you were talking about the discomfort of – kind of reflecting on your own experiences with consent and being like, Oh fuck, like that wasn't consent. That was trauma. <laughs> like, um, yeah. But then this idea of like, it's not, it's not, a, it's not the opportunity to reflect uncomfortably, although that might be part of the process. It's like a lens through which to see the world and through which to have a relationship with like the body and intuition and other people yes. and work and sex and, you know, and self. Right. So how did that kind of unfold? Yeah. Because it's pretty, it's, it's pretty radical in the, I don't know, like most literal sense of the word. Yeah. It's interesting that it was like all this stuff about, you know, connection to the body and like, um, and connection to self and even this idea of like consent with yourself, that was all seeming so obvious to me, not even obvious, like in a, I don't know, like, a like there's no, there wasn't like oh, duh. It was just kind of like, this is what it is. Like, this just is what I'm experiencing. It wasn't even conscious. I guess that's what I mean. I wasn't consciously saying like, oh, what about consent with the self? I I think it was like, as I was going through all this health stuff and like, you know, actively taking these pills that I knew were going to make me feel awful, but like for the greater good and, you know, for an ultimate goal, like, I was having all these internal conversations with myself, you know, like I'm like looking at this pill and I'm like, my body is like, please don't do that to me. And I'm like, we have to, like, I'll be here, you know, I'm setting this up so that we're going to be okay. But like, we have to do this, taking the pill, feeling horrible, you know, like that's not, you know, if you think about that as like a consent, 
problem. Like it's a mind fuck, you yeah. know, it's like I, my body's saying don't do it. And I'm saying, no, we have to. And so I'm like violating my body's consent in a way, but I do have this information that puts me in a position of like, this is actually care that yeah. I, we need right now. So like, you know, that, that whole thing. And also, you know, and I know that there's a question coming around like white supremacy and capitalism and, and patriarchy. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> like, not. Well, it's all related. It's like, you know, I, we, I think white supremacy culture and, and capitalism, well, white supremacy culture, I think really splits us from our bodies. It, it tells us that there are two separate things, you know, and like, I trace that back to Descartes and I hate Descartes. Um, this idea that they're, you know, mind over matter, mm -hmm. like the body just needs to like obey and fall into place. And, and then capitalism really benefits from this schism. It's really easy to market to yeah, undeniably. <laughs> right. When like, when there's a rupture that they can claim to repair, um, capitalism well, also really grind you to dust and like call it oh, great. <laughs> right. Right. And then, or like tell you that you should feel terrible about whatever part of your body and then be like, but if you give us money, we can fix it for you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I see this in the, in the medical industry, the way that like white supremacy and capitalism have like just wreaked havoc on the medical industry in this country, turned it into an industry, um, in the first place. And so much of the healing work that I needed to do was about repairing that rupture. Um, I had, you know, for, for all my life, I mean, really all my life, um, like told my body to shut the fuck up, to be able to do what everyone else can do, you know, eat the pizza, eat the cake, eat the ice cream. If, if you can't, there's something wrong with you. Kids are going to make fun of you, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, until the point where my body was just absolutely screaming at me so that I would listen. And, and then eventually I had no choice. Um, you know, it, I mean, it, it really got, it got so bad that I was like, I'm going to need like an exit strategy from being alive. If this yeah. just continues like this, um, like not this. like I, yeah, like I, I didn't want to die, but I was like, this is not living, you know, this is not sustainable. Um, so I was going through all of that and like repairing this, this rupture with, with my body and like really beginning to learn how it was talking to me. Um, and consent was an incredible, you know, set of tools and frameworks in which to do that kind of healing, um, and build that trust again, up, like build up that trust between my mind and my body. So you asked about getting to like consent wizardry. What I started to see more and more was that like, as I listened to my body more and I did what felt good and I said no to things that didn't or didn't feel aligned. Hmm. A, the easier it was to feel that. Like it just, you know, the more I did it, the easier it was. And B, the more synchronicity was happening in my life. Um, you know, people were showing up at just the right time. Things were like, I, you know, I would ask for things and they would materialize. Um, and then... And then, well, okay, I'll come back to that magic thing. Well, 
so I mean, even, even things like things like I would, um, you know, say like, I really want to meet this person. Like I, I want, I found this workbook, the decolonizing nonviolent communication workbook. Hmm. And I was like, wow, this person's really cool. Um, Um, and I was like, I ordered it. And then before it arrived, my friend said, like, I want to introduce you to my friend. And then I get in the, like, and it's, it's Minachi. <laughs> and me not like Minachi is now one of my best friends. And we just recorded a podcast yesterday of mine about what you asked about this, like, you know, how consent can sometimes like change your memories of things retroactively. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I would get out of a zoom with one person and go into a new zoom with someone else. And like, they would know each other. Beautiful. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the way you're talking about, it sounds like a lot of when people get sober and they're like, is it odd or is it God? And it's like, it's God, but, and it's odd, Um, but that kind of like the magic starts to happen when you're kind of aligned with like whatever intuition values, like, I mean, and it's like, it sounds a little woo woo, but I, it's such a real experience that it's like, okay, life is woo woo. (laughs) Like, Yeah. Right. I, 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 yeah, I don't like to describe anything as woo woo just because I'm like, it doesn't have to, I don't have to be able to like scientifically explain it in order to know that it's like happening or to feel it. And I think consent for me was like such, so much about this practice of like of deep, deep listening to things that aren't, you know, beyond words, like to information in in myself Mm -hmm. that I used to ignore Um, and the magic just kept coming and coming and coming. I mean, really, really freaky things. Like I found my dog's estranged puppy that had gotten adopted before I got her. Um, and I adopted her two hours away and I found her puppy at a dog park because I started talking to this woman that I thought was really cute and like was interested in, and it was her dog. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean like really unexplainable, incredibly freaky, amazing things. Um, you know, and it's interesting too, cause I, I just was, this is like a shameless plug, but I was just profiled in the LA times, which is like, oh, hey, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. Like the, the reporter asked me if I like how I landed on the, the terms consent wizardry for my business. And I like went into this whole explanation about like magic and, you know, also like reclaiming magic for queers out of the hands of turfs <laughs> and all this stuff. And, um, and then all it was reduced to in the article was like, magic is just the word that Mia uses for synchronicity or like something like that. And I was like, no, no, it's literally everything. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, it's, it's interesting. Like when you, when you talk about it like that, because like in kind of slowly kind of stumbling closer to this place where seeking like somatic consent, mm-hmm. self-consent, mm-hmm. Uh, it gets so clear in the past where that wasn't happening. And also yeah. like in the present, the, like for instance, I had a, a, a business meeting yesterday and, and my management was like suggesting a bunch of stuff career wise to kind of like levy, lever, levy the profile because it's not where it was. <laughs> this is embarrassing sure. to be talking about on my own podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, well uh, now, you know, it's not where it was, <laughs> but like everything they were suggesting, my body was like, no, no, no. Yeah, which is like, and so kind of what to do, like how to, like you were talking about being a wise adult. 
for yourself when you're like taking medication that made that your body yes. was actively resisting. So like, how do you kind of, uh, in the present, like in real time, how do you, um, guide yourself through situations for a greater good if you feel the kind of somatic mm. dissonance, right? Like, how's that, how do you, uh, yeah. How do you kind of, I don't know, trust that process? Well, it's taken a lot of practice and I think it is going to be a practice forever. Um, it's a lot of checking in. A lot of times it's about like removing urgency as best as I can. Um, I, you know, I developed this yes to no spectrum that I teach a class on and use a lot. And, um, on the yes side of things, usually the thoughts that I'm having are about myself. It's like, how would that feel to me? How would I feel after? How would I feel if I don't? Hmm. Um, maybe like what more information do I need? Like what other questions do I have? Um, you know, can I, do this for a limited amount of time? Can I come up with a safe word? Can I say like, I, you know, can I preface this with like, I may change my mind or something like that. And then on the no side, the thoughts that I'm usually having are more about other people and how I'm being perceived. So like, what will they think of me if I don't do this? Or if I do do this, um, you know, what'll be the repercussions for this relationship or for my career or whatever. And so trying to identify like where I'm at that way is really helpful. And, um, you know, sometimes I still have to do things or choose to do things on the no side because of my career or mm -hmm. the relationship or whatever it is, or the long game, the big picture, you know, yeah. the big picture, exactly. Or the, or the good of the group or something like that. Um, but now, instead of trying to convince myself that it's a yes for me, I acknowledge that it's a no and that I'm choosing to do it anyway. And that allows me to set up the care that I need before, during, and after. Um, um, I'm like, my mind is blown. That's so yeah. good. <laughs> but that's so beautiful just because it's like, and, and it also is, uh, you have advocacy in there. You know, like exactly. There's exactly. a it's a choice that you make instead of kind of self coercion of like I love this even though it's clearly right, not right. the case. Um, wow, that's like it's it, it's and also I remember like hearing you kind of talk about on on your own podcast another shameless plug. It's called Share the Load. Yeah. Check it out if you listen to this podcast. You'll probably really like that podcast. Um, but the idea of kind of like is it like a cement um, boundary or is it like a rubber boundary and kind of like mm -hmm. how to like mm -hmm. to, to do the slow work of like checking in with oneself and not just like kind of skipping the phase where you actually feel your feelings in your body, which I think, you know, a lot of uh, the audience is, is in recovery and like, we're really good at that. <laughs> the, yeah. like, just totally eviscerating the part that involves feelings. I, I mean, I, my, you know, I have quite a few sober friends and I will say like pretty consistently, they're pretty amazing at saying no to stuff. We're working like on it as a community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. It is part of, it's kind of like the ground zero of like being in recovery is saying no to stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for reminding because I think we also like, we 
we have strong people pleasing tendencies because within the recovery literature, right. there's a lot of like suit up and show up and like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's so based in a kind of like Abrahamic tradition, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And like, honestly, it's still like, I love, I love 12 step recovery, but this is the, this is the inheritance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, I think overlap, uh, that I've seen and like in research that I've done around, 12 step as it relates to consent stuff. Um, but there's also been like places that I've noticed where consent is not sometimes being practiced, like, especially around the making amends where like, I think that sometimes, um, people are like, okay, I have to make amends. And so they don't check in and like, make sure that that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, also like in, in both cases, right. With the person who's being like made amends to, and also the person who's making the amends of like, is this actually something I'm ready for process wise? Right. right. Or do I just have to do it because this is where like the step. Yeah. <laughs> Cause otherwise I'll die. It's like right, the kind of right. motivating factor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but kind of speaking of which, like, you know, there's, I've been recently hearing that the Brene Brown study re- resurfaced where she talks about like compassion, like the, the root of compassion being good boundaries. Like that's the mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. overriding factor. And I was wondering if that you find that that's like, if that's uh, in uh, aligned with your work. Yes, definitely. I think, uh, you know, the definition, uh, Prentice Hemphill's definition of boundaries, I think really ties into that really beautifully. They say um, that, I don't know that I'm going to get every word totally correct, but it's something like um, boundaries are like, are the distance at which I can love you and myself at mm-hmm. the same time or something like that. That sounds familiar. Um, yeah. It's, it's on my website. I should know that one by <laughs> heart, but um, it's it, in, in my experience, like strong boundaries have made it possible to not just, love and care and have compassion because I'm protecting those like resources of mine. Um, and because I'm not like giving beyond my capacity, but it also makes it easier to receive those things from other people. Because if I trust that they're not giving beyond their capacity, then, and, and if I trust that they're not people pleasing with the love and care and compassion that they're expressing, then I can accept it. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, it's, it's sort of related to like, like it's hard for me to trust someone who can't say no to me. Um, And so what'll happen is I just won't ask for support because I'm like, I know that this person isn't going to be able to turn me down Mm -hmm. if they are unavailable or burnt out or whatever. And if I don't trust them to do that, then I'm just not going to ask. I'm going to ask someone else because I don't want anyone to, uh, to you know, like say that they can take care of my dog, for example, if they're like truly not available or going to resent me for it or going to – or if it's going to like inconvenience them to a different extent than just like now I have to care for a dog, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, yeah, I think what Brene – Brown is talking about is the way that, um, boundaries offer containers. Um, containers is a thing that we talk about in consent a lot that is, um, 
you know, like if, like if, if you say you're coming to LA can, and ask if you can like stay with me and I say, yeah, of course there's going to be this like really confusing thing of like, well, when is it time to go? Like, when have you overstayed your welcome? Like, do I now have to ask you to leave? Like whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I say, yeah, I think you can stay with me for, for three days. Like that's, that's my capacity here. That gives us very clear boundaries and it allows us to then like move within this container. Um, you know, in, in intimacy coordination, it's like we build a structure together of movements and kinds of touch that allow the actors to then play within that structure, which is so much more freeing. Yeah. And it feels so safer, much, I'm sure, for everybody. It, just like, exactly. Oh. It feels so much safer. It allows them to play and it allows them to create and try new things because they have a structure. So without that structure, you know, often actors will I'll say like, can you tell your scene partner uh, like what, where is okay to touch you? And they'll go anywhere is fine. And the other person freezes. They're yeah. like, I'm not going to touch you anywhere then because, oh my God, like, please just tell me guilt, you know, building a menu that way is so powerful. Um, so anyway, you know, these, these all tie in together. I think having, having very clear boundaries allows everyone to like be in consent together and understand like what the limits are and, and, you know, how to show up for each other. And I love how like you, you frame it as like a, a space to play, like a container for active play and connection as opposed to like a fucking bummer. <laughs> Cause I think it can be, it's so easy to like mark at it, market it as something that's like something that we have to do. Cause like the woke people are going to come after us. And it's like, no, it's a great opportunity for like actually getting in touch with like what your needs or desires are and how to communicate them. Because like that stuff is clearly not, you know, convenient for, again, the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but also I think that like it, to, to frame it as play and to frame it as like, this is, this is the root of liberation is really uh, beautiful. Absolutely. And I love, you know, what you're bringing up because I think that the, the people who, 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 kind of, uh, you know, tense up at the idea of boundaries and think that it's like, like, you know, woke nonsense or whatever, um, are the people who don't know themselves, you know, like that, that's what they're really fighting against is like, they don't know who they are. They don't know what they need. They don't know what they want. And so they're unable to express that to other people. So very often when, there's like resistance to consent education. Um, like this is really at the crux of it. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, you know, what, what would it mean? And how would you have to like reorient your life if you began to really look inside in that way? Oh, and it's heavy lifting. I have to say, it is. It is. Uh, but I think it's also, it's like, imagine not having to kind of do things that your whole body didn't want to do. <laughs> like, yeah. Or if you did have to do them, quote unquote, like you, it could be a choice as opposed to kind of an obligation, you know, and that's like a, mm -hmm. a pretty incredible way of living life, you know, and I think also giving others the permission to live in the same way and respecting exactly. those, uh, those frontiers, I guess. Um, and I'm going to read this question because it's quite, <laughs> it's verbose. Mm -hmm. 
Um, actually, there's it's like it's kind of two headed. So, you know, we we talked a little bit about like you know it's sober sex. So we have a large part of our audience in recovery. And I think a lot of our experience there, as I mentioned, at least I know for me personally and a lot of experiences that I've heard is that we drown out um, our own kind of somatic relationships, both like in active addiction and then also like it can be very difficult to recover those things, even uh, in sobriety. And I was wondering, especially working in uh, intimacy coordination, but like how do you help clients or how do you help uh, aid people in getting back in touch with that? peace? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, you know, it's very specific to like how the rupture occurred and what they're mm-hmm. dealing with. Like, you know, for me, it's extremely tied to illness. So that's a thing that sometimes often now, because I'm very open about that, people come to me and they're like, I also have, you know, this kind of illness. And, um, so this is why it's hard for me to feel my feelings and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, you know, I think I have like a bit of a skewed, um, I think my, the population that I serve skews in that direction. Um, as well as I, you know, I'm mostly working with, with like queer and trans people and, you know, the age groups that typically come to me, like, you know, I think my audience is like pretty specific in that way, but so working with the people that I most commonly work with, a lot of it is about slowing down. Um, I, I, I've described it as slowing down so you can zoom in. So it's really like, you know, you can slow down so that time kind of expands and you can zoom into smaller and smaller and smaller moments and take the time. I mean, often like that's, that's really what it is, is it's like, take the time to feel what you're, body is feeling and then respect that as your body's language and how it's communicating with you. So first you have to kind of like give that meaning because I think for a lot of people it's like, well, that means I have gas. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. But like, maybe why do you have gas? Yeah. Or why are you not digesting your food? (laughs) Right. Or like, how do you feel about having gas? You know, are you embarrassed? Are you reprimanding yourself? Are you blaming yourself for eating something you shouldn't have? Mm. Um, you know, what is your relationship to that gas? Um, I say this as a very gassy person. (laughs) Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a process of slowing down and giving that information meaning so that you can start to then recognize patterns because, you know, our bodies don't speak the language that we speak. We have to actually learn to interpret it. Um, and very often it's, it's just very easy to say like, that doesn't mean anything, you know, like, like, Oh, I just had like a little, like, I feel pressure in my chest and like, you know, I, I get that in the mornings and like write that off, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of like, Oh, I wonder why I'm like waking up stressed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's like kind of the first way in. And, and I think it's just, it's just practice. Like it really is. It's with so much of this stuff. It's like, just the more you do it, the more you slow down, the more you listen, um, the better you get at it. Yeah. And I mean, I I appreciate the, like the fact that it does take time and that it's like, it is again, like kind of, 
anything that I'm unwilling to do because I'm like, I'm busy. It's like, well, <laughs> oh no. yeah. well it's like, it's like, this is actually the, the act of liberation. Like if, if you, if you want to walk the walk, like this is the necessary steps because yeah. otherwise it's just the, the meat machine over and over again, you know, like, Oh yeah. And sort of kind of reframe of like, no, it's not like, it's, it's not, unnecessary it's like the like you were saying removing urgency it's like it's the most necessary and it's going to take some time (laughs) right right well and you don't have to do it all today you know like it's not something that you can be like uh, oh I have to like repair my relationship to my body so today I commit to listening to my body from now on and then like okay you're doing it now you know (laughs) it's like you're it's gonna get and also the language changes like because it gets the deeper you listen and the, the longer you practice listening, the subtler the information becomes and you're able to notice these things earlier and with your body needing to, you know, demand less attention from you, which is a really beautiful thing. It's like, you know, I think about it often. I think about my gut often as like a small child or like myself as a little kid. And it's like the difference between, you know, a toddler like, screaming and crying and stomping their feet versus just like tugging at my shirt. Mm-hmm. You know? Like if I can get to a point where our relationship is so trusting and we're so attuned to each other that all that little kid has to do is like tug at my shirt, then we're going to have a much better. <laughs> I'm so moved. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's so true. Cause I do think like for a long time, I was under the impression that like, if I kind of powered through, that and I don't think I'm alone in this I think this is like (laughs) uh, a a vestige of the the patriarchy anyway that like if I powered through whatever that like the whatever I was feeling would go away and like in fact it just gets louder until it's in fact debilitating because like it's a need (laughs) the need doesn't go away if you don't meet the need you know right your body will say no if if you're incapable of doing it or or it will wake you incapable if it can't continue as you were kind of remarking yes. on that it's like this is there has to be an exit strategy or i have to look at this those are the options right yeah yeah um and i guess it kind of also in line with like the question surrounding um addiction is this idea that like right now the as i mentioned before the music industry is having its own kind of mm-hmm. me too moment mm-hmm. and uh, or especially within dance music like <laughs> i might not have made it clear but i'm like i uh, am a dj i work in club environments and mm-hmm. um but so a lot of this can be very challenging to reconcile because not only like the you know the entertainment industry are there power dynamics in play but a lot of times there's also drugs and alcohol yeah um and so the question is, it's like, now you can answer this question because it's pretty heavy. It's how do you think we start or continue the conversation linking rape culture and addiction or alcoholism when it can feel like a very chicken and egg situation in places where a notion of hedonism is such a powerful marketing factor? Mm. <laughs> Sorry for that question. You have to fix the problem now. Just kidding. Right. <laughs> Ready to go. Okay. Um, well, I guess what's coming up for me is the way that like, there's often, you know, when there's a crisis, well, oh God, how do I even, okay. I'll use a little bit of an analogy. Very often, uh, at least at the beginning of, of intimacy coordination, like I, you know, I was 
there when it was like starting. (laughs) So like, I remember a time where I would get a call from like a frantic producer being like, are you available tomorrow? Like we have a, basically a fire that we need you Mm -hmm. to put out. Um, versus the experience of like being brought on at the beginning of a show, being staffed, meeting everybody, being part of the production meetings and all that. Um, so being called in to put out a fire really sucks. And, you know, it's like a situation in which I need people to trust me and feel comfortable around me, but they don't know me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also like not what I got into this work to do. I don't really like to do emergencies. Well, cause that's um, more of like a, like, when you say emergency, it means there's probably been a consent violation, right? Yes. That it's like, <laughs> there's a fire. <laughs> a violation or like someone, you know, an actor doesn't, isn't comfortable with a scene that was written for them. And so they're, so, they're kind of now like, we have to rewrite this overnight. So we need you to like figure out what this actor's, com- like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when there's a crisis, like the one you're talking about in the music industry, um, and, you know, we see this in, in the entertainment industry as well. Uh, often producers are like, how do we fix this? Let's put rules in place, build a checklist, build protocols, mm-hmm. you know, and then we can like wash our hands and say like, we did it. So what happens is that consent gets reduced to a checklist. Mm-hmm. And that's not how change is going to happen. Um I talk about consent as like an embodied practice, a language, a way of moving through the world. It is something that you can become fluent in and it has to be something that, that truly like makes its way into your body. So I compare it often to learning a language or a dance or anything physical. Like I mentioned, I do ceramics, um, you know, any, or, or playing an instrument, like anything that, that can become embodied. If you've ever had the experience of like, you know, learning something. And at first you're kind of like, okay, right. And then I do this and then I do that. Or like, and this is the word. And then I have to conjugate the, da, 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 yeah. da. um, and then eventually you become fluent and it's in your body. Um, it becomes a lot more instinctual, you know, you can still like fall back on those tools and those methods and those skills, but for the most part, it's just part of how you're moving through the world. Yeah. It's like the lens through which you experience everything as opposed to exactly. like a checklist. <laughs> right. So obviously that takes more time. It's a longer investment. It's a forever commitment. Um, And it's not something that you can really do with any urgency. So when there's a crisis, this kind of overhaul is hard um, because people are like, we need to fix this immediately so that we can go back to our old our job. Yeah, whatever. Um, And my feeling is that, you know, when something like this becomes embodied and it just is part of the foundation of how everyone is interacting with each other, how everyone is communicating with each other or, or not everyone, but like enough people so that this is like the baseline, Mm -hmm. then yes, drugs and alcohol can send some people to a place where they're like, they've like completely lost touch with their integrity and who they are and what they know and what they believe. But I think for the most part, like, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm speaking about like, there, there are people who, you know, get really drunk or do a lot of drugs and they, they like 
completely, you know, change. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think for the, for the most part, people become less inhibited, you know, they become forgetful. Like it's not that kind of Jekyll and Hyde type of thing. And so even if you lose touch with like, you know, your, uh, whatever, like your executive functioning or something like that, if this is part of how you're living your life and how you're communicating, um, it is, it's still going to be there to some degree. Mm-hmm. No. So I, I totally, that is very aligned with, I think <laughs> my experience, but also like then the, the you know, the reality being that we're so, so far from that as a baseline, I think as a culture, especially within yes. dance music that it's like, Oh fuck. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of getting people on board with this, you know, that's where the hurdle is because people have to be willing to do like the front loading of mm-hmm. the work in order. And, and I, you know, I could go on, we could, there's a route that we could take in this conversation where I can share like my experiences around telling people that I do this job and like the kind of resistance that I get. I mean, you already kind of touched on it, you know, where people are like, Oh, boundaries, like those are for losers or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> so no, sad. I mean, I know, so, I know. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's part of it. And, you know, here's where, here's where the 12 step stuff has come up for me around consent is like, I think that there are people who are on, who, who actually like that sense of power mm-hmm. of like, I can do whatever I want to this person. I can touch them however I want. I can take whatever I want. And, you know, whether or not they're willing to admit, like there is a high from that of like having that kind of control and having that kind of power. I remember hearing, um, Harvey Weinstein's brother talk about how he thought that Harvey was addicted to the power of the abuse. Um, and so I think for, for some people anyway, there's this sense of like, if I start thinking about this stuff, then I don't get to do what I want. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Like, which is heartbreaking because you like, you do want to kind of believe, you know, that everybody's trying their best. And this is a painful example of where that does not feel like the case. Yeah. I mean, and then also then how to kind of create a dominant culture that is one that is based in consent as like a, as, as a positive like lens through which to view the world, you know, not like a joy killer or, or retributive or punitive. You know, I think like I, I specifically, the, the consent that I teach is, you know, very much based in transformative justice and abolition. And like, it's very anti carceral. So if, you know, if I really believe, you know, I get stuck in these moments, like these ideological, uh, quagmires where I'm like, but what about people like Harvey Weinstein? And I'm like, well, if I, if I really, really am going to see this belief system through, then I have to believe that there's like a path for redemption or a path for healing or a path for forgiveness to someone who's even done that kind of like horrendous kind of thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, but also I think it's like, it's a powerful, um, like, because it is based in, you know, self and this idea of like trusting intuition and kind of like responding affirmatively that it it's not the responsibility of others to like 
keep their shit in check. Like that's, that would be really nice (laughs) if people would just fucking behave. But if that's not the reality that we're living in, then it's like, how, how can we, if, if we are serious about this as like a kind of way of life and a, and a a foundation of kind of interacting and viewing the world, like it, it becomes about also like respecting that enough that, uh, it, the override of like, I know for me, it's like the possibility of like success or like we were talking about like a profile leverage or like all that stuff isn't enough to kind of, um, betray myself. Right. Mm -hmm. But so it's not anybody else's responsibility, but that stuff has to be learned and practiced. And that's the hard part. Um, so it kind of, that is beautiful, beautiful segue. <laughs> Next question. Um, and we're winding down, but what, how do, so then how do we start the process of self-education and like cultural awakening when it comes to consent? Like how do you, if someone's listening to this podcast and it's like, holy shit, like their mind is blown. <laughs> what, what, what are their next steps? Oh my God. I mean, if I had the answer to that question, I'd, you know, I'd be golden. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I mean, and when I, when I started to learn about consent, through intimacy coordination training so immediate like i felt my brain expanding and like making new space to incorporate all this stuff like i was like whoa this is changing me so fast changing my relationships it's changing everything um and i knew then that i was going to my goal was to make this information as widely available and as easily digestible as possible and that's like, that's what my Instagram is, you know, like that's, and that's why, you know, even though it's free and it makes me no money and costs me a lot of time, <laughs> um, I am committed to it because I'm like, I want this information to be as, as available as possible. Um, I offer classes, I've recorded classes, I have a workbook, you know, my hope is that like, there's enough access points to this information at enough like payment tiers that people can get what they need. Um, I'm working on a book, you know, I'm doing podcasts like this, but beyond me, like I need, I do need help, you know, I need help spreading the word. And I think for people to get on board with this and then dive as deeply as they can, the one thing that I will say is like over and over again, I, I felt and also hear from others that they feel this, like they go through a really intense period of mourning. There's a lot of grief that comes up around this work. I would imagine that it's similar with addiction. Like that, you know, it's like, I wish that I, I'm so, I felt such optimism for like what my life could be in the future. And also so much grief Mm -hmm. for, you know, quote unquote time wasted. Like I don't, really believe in time oh, yeah, or just the like, positions we put ourselves in when before yes. we have this information it's, right. it's heartbreaking right it is um you know I've felt similarly when I found out that like all these things I had been eating had been like essentially poisoning me um I felt it again when um I discovered uh, so after I went through this whole like period of treatment and like getting my diagnoses and stuff I went to Mexico to shoot a show and found out 
now three years later that I got a tapeworm while I was there. So what I, I, all these, like I know, I know. So I started experiencing this similar symptoms to what I had experienced before. And they were similar enough that I thought like, Oh, I'm just sort of relapsing. Mm-hmm. Like the treatment didn't take and I'm getting it's I'm back, you know, I'm backtracking. And, um, it turned out this summer that in fact I had had a tapeworm this entire time, the entire time, all the pandemic, like I had a worm living in me. So, you know, that was like yet another instance where I was like, Oh my God, like what my life could have been over the last several years, had I not had this thing or had I known and could have gotten Mm -hmm. rid of it. And at the same time, like, wow, I am going to, be fucking unstoppable. Yeah, like, doing all of this I, work with a fucking tapeworm. Right. Like now what am I capable of? Oh my God. And like being able to listen to my body through all the noise of this fucking alien demon. <laughs> and you know, without <laughs> that now, like, whoa, just, I'm like, I'm ready for whatever is to come. But anyway, that's all to say, like, if the, I think the grief or the anticipation of grief, whether or not people have like the words to describe it as that, often gets in the way of starting. Mm -hmm. That said, I mean, you know, I'm like, there's no right time to start. So start now. And that said, I I think, you know, you'll start when you're ready. Um, But that does pose a barrier to your, your previous question around like, what do we do when a community is in crisis? Like if people are only going to really take to this information when they're ready, like how do we collectively get more people ready? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think we're doing it. I mean, I think it's this conversation, you know, I'd like to hope so. I mean, sincerely, <laughs> like, I, cause I do think that, that it's been so affirming, you know, mm. to like, especially cause I think that for a lot of us, and, and if you're kind of curious about this work, if you're listening, you're curious about this work and like you feel some trepidation about starting, like, I think for me, at least a lot of the grief process happened kind of like in acknowledging my unawareness of it, you know, and it kind of happened, mm-hmm. like that's the, essentially like if we're going to use a 12 step analogy, it's like, that's the first step It's the powerlessness yes. and unmanageability. So like, actually this is like, this is the solution. Like, congratulations, you know, right. <laughs> we, we've arrived. <laughs> and you've been listening for an hour and 10 minutes. So you're already doing it. Going on. And the other thing that I would <laughs> say, yeah, good job. The other thing that I would say is like, do it in community, you know, like grief is really hard when you're going through it alone, but find some to sign up for the class with you, you know, find someone to do the workbook with you. Um, and then, and then, or, or, you know, plan for the grief accordingly, like know that it's going to come. I'm telling you right now that it's going to come and then, um, set up your therapy appointments, you yeah, know, like, set up, yeah, yeah. Set up your dinners with friends, set up your phone calls to your mom. Like you can do that for yourself. That's really beautiful. And I think that's really like, very, very helpful, um, in terms of like kind of opening, kicking the door open for people to have joy about the possibility Mm -hmm. inherent in this work. Um, so if people want to learn more about you and your work, where, uh, where would we seek the path of consent wizardry? (laughs) Um, we're all consent wizards, uh, (laughs) you included, uh, you can, I'm on Instagram at consent dot wizardry. Um, my website is consentwizardry.com. Um, my podcast, as you mentioned, is called share the load. Um, where else? Uh, I shut down my Twitter. 
I'm like barely on TikTok. I mean, that's, that's enough. And then if there's anything else that you want, like if anyone's looking specifically for my intimacy coordination site, you can find that through my, through my website. Um, but it, it is its own website. It's intimacy for TV and film.com. Um, I also have an art site called Max Silver makes art. It's where my music and ceramics are. Um, and yeah, I guess that's, that's it. Awesome. That's really helpful. So I highly recommend you check it out. The website is, is very, very, very good. Um, and I have more questions after we stop recording on that, but we like to finish with a brief lightning round. Um, Mm -hmm. so just to kind of end on a, on a joyful note. (laughs) Uh, so what does a full body? Yes. Feel like to you? Mm. Um, it feels warm and tingly and, um, sometimes even like it comes with a little bit of a, of a collapse, like a melting, Mm. like release. I love that. I feel like mine feels like fireworks. It's like Mm. (laughs) effervescent. Uh, that's, I really like the melting, melting collapse. Um, what's a song that gets you pumped up? You know, I've been listening to uh, Demi Lovato's uh, Holy Fuck album on repeat for, I mean, truly probably like five months now. Uh, and the whole album is amazing, but the song Holy Fuck is great. The song Eat Me is great. And I love the song Happy Ending, though it's very, uh, I wouldn't say it gets me pumped up. I just really like screaming it in the car. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, What is a book, series, or movie that you've recently consumed and can recommend? Mm. Um, Book on Connection by Kay Tempest. I read that for the third time in two years um, and finished it a few weeks ago. That book is just absolutely incredible. It's all about connection through creativity or creativity as connection um, and like building. I mean, I think, you know, Kay is talking about consent without using the language of consent, um, in a way that's really beautiful and specifically talking about like art and expression and authenticity. Um, yeah, I'd say that. And then shows, um, I, this is a a weird one, but I was so incredibly enthralled in the reality show, um, finding magic Mike. (laughs) <laughs> Anyone who's interested okay. in like gender, vulnerability, authenticity, finding yourself, you know, sexuality, masculinity, like it's all in there. And I was like crying every episode. The other one I will say is weird. <laughs> weird. It's so good. It's so good. It's one of the best things I've ever seen on television. Um, and I'm even like recommending it for my masculinity class this summer. Um, but also the show we're here. That's, that is a life changing show. We are here on HBO. It's three Queens from drag race, um, basically doing queer eye, but drag in small towns and like changing people's life. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. All those are my three. Amazing. <laughs> Such good recommendations. I'm really <laughs> excited to like listen to, back to this so I can write them down. Uh, what is your favorite meal or snack? Steak and French fries. Steak and French fries. What turns you on? And that can be sexually or like creatively, intellectually, mm. like whatever you want. Mm. Safety. That's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, like that sounds very healthy. <laughs> um, how do you reset during a hard day? Um, with my 
pets. Um, I have three. I showed Louisa. They were uh, in a cuddle puddle. It was amazing. Yeah, they were all three cuddling, two cats and a dog. Um, Other than that, I don't know. Honestly, that's like I'm working on that one. Self-care is not my strong suit. Um, I'm not so good with the like in the moment figuring out like what's going to help. But again, you know, related to what I said before, like – I do call in community for that sometimes. Like I'll, I'll just reach out to a friend and be like, what should I do to relax? And they'll be like, take a bath or like go for a walk. And That's it's really dogs. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh, um, <laughs> what do you love? What do I love? Oh gosh. I'm um, inclined in this moment of like quick figuring out my answer to say my body. I love my body very much. It has been through a lot and um, it's pretty amazing. I could weep. (laughs) That's so beautiful. Uh, Well, thank you so, so, so much, Mia. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and like, thank Thank you for all the work that you do. It's really, it's really something else. Oh, thank you. This was such a good conversation. I hope both of our days are less weird as a result. Yeah, I do feel a lot better than I did before we started this. Oh, so thank hooray. you. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got it, mental growth, suffer, sex, all of this and more. Gender identity, recovery, recovery, got a spiritual growth. Stop her.